Well, good morning, everyone. So glad to see you here this morning. I hope everyone read the accumulated account of the resurrection. If you weren't here last week, you might want to get a copy of the notes. Because what we did was to bring the four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of them having aspects of the account of the resurrection as with every other aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. And we put them all together. And there may be a few places where you say, I don't know if I put that there or here, but, you know, this is just the way it has to be. But to read from the beginning when the ladies are going to the tomb very early in the morning at the breaking of the day or the dawning of the day, it was still evening when they started. It was light when they got there. All of these kinds of what's going on. And to read through the entire narrative until really I think where we stopped was Jesus appearing to the disciples in Galilee. Remember, go and tell my disciples that I go before them into Galilee and we'll meet there for Sunday night service. Even Jesus knew Sunday night service was the thing to do, but whatever. I don't, I don't comment on it any more than just that. So whatever. <clears throat> and so we talked a little bit about, again, <sighs> everything about creation, about Adam and Eve, about God's remedy to the fall, about the promise of the Messiah, about the birth of the Messiah, about the ministry of the Messiah, about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And we'll stop with that because we'll go forward in a week or two. Everything is for God's glory. Everything is about God's glory. It's all about God. And so, as we've said before, as we look at especially the death and the resurrection of Jesus... We know that our salvation is at stake and is accomplished specifically at this point. But we don't want to make the death and resurrection of Jesus about us primarily. The reason we are saved in these events is because these, in these events, the Son of God glorified the Father. Amen? That's the reason we're saved. We are saved because in the life, in the ministry, in the death, in the burial, and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, God the Father is glorified, and as we'll learn a little bit today, and then accepts this great work of the Messiah as accomplishing his glory, his purpose to be glorified in his people. Therefore, we are saved. Had it not glorified God... We would be dead in our sins. So let's make sure we put ourselves underneath the glory of God in that kind of a capacity, but also put ourselves as the God-created 
and intended means or the vessels in which his glory would be fully manifested. Amen? Okay, so let's go on today. So this morning, the three most important words that Jesus utters at the cross are what? It is finished. Then we come to the three most important words of the first day of the week, a Sunday. And what are those three most important words? He is risen. So let's talk a little bit about the significance of these three words, and we'll continue next week with this. It is finished. So let's think about what is finished. I'm sorry, he is risen. What does he is risen contain? What, a contain? what is contained in these three words that the angel, according to the Father's authority, states to the women? It is finished. Remember those three most important words from the cross. And he is risen. What is contained in this most important affirmation from heaven? He is risen. This is the Father's great and joyful announcement to all creation. That his beloved son, remember Matthew 3, 17, Jesus is being baptized. You are my beloved son. What is contained in this announcement is that his beloved son has fulfilled what? Finished. Remember Colossians 2, 17 has fulfilled all the work he sent the son to accomplish. And I want you to especially remember Colossians 2, 17, because it says that Jesus is the substance. The Greek word there has to do with the body of evidence or the body, the activity. It has to do with fulfillment. And so we're going to talk, I think, after all this is finished and go back and look at the gospel of Matthew itself within a larger context of Colossians 2.17. I think that's what we're going to be doing after we finish Matthew Technically, we won't be finished until we give some kind of an overview to everything that this gospel and the other gospels, of course, contain. And so it is important that you know Colossians 2.17. It's one of those verses which is absolutely fundamentally critical to our understanding of the entire Old Testament. In that one little verse is contained the entire revelational understanding of the Old Testament. All right? Jesus is the substance. So I want to kind of let you see that before we get into it later. And so this means that the Father's original intention for the creation, what is that? What is the Father's original intention? That he would be glorified manifestedly so in a people who are in his image. Remember Genesis one twenty six. Finally, he is risen, says... That the Father's intention, that he has been moving toward the accomplishment and the fulfillment of this intention ever since Genesis 3, 6, which says, and he ate when Adam sinned. Ever since that moment, God has been moving through all these types and shadows and events and histories and all of this work of the Old Testament moving inexorably forward to this event this twin event, death, resurrection, that at the cross, everything has been paid for, fulfilled, shown to be the, Christ shown to be the substance, and then in the resurrection, all of it now 
is now going to be implemented so that in the resurrection, God will have his purpose fulfilled in a resurrected, righteous people according to his image, or made in his image, rather. So, he is risen. What's contained here? Gathered into these three simple words, and we must see the word this way. We must see the word more comprehensively than we have in typically seen it. Rather than seeing it in categories and in activities, whatever, it's okay. As long as we know that all those activities and all those events are an accumulation of revelation to make the revelation, to reveal the revelation as just one revelation through many activities and through many circumstances and through many events. So gathered into these three simple words, it is finished. The Father has redeemed his people. The Father now has a people whom he can say, my people. In the Old Testament, 172 times the Father calls his people, my people. It is finished, is gathered into the words, he is risen. So that the Father's purpose of having a people for his own possession a people for his own joy, a people who would be expressive of who he is in himself is finally finished and fulfilled and now begins to be manifested in a people through these three words, he is risen. The divine work of being glorified in a people began when? When God began to dwell, actually began with the creation, but began to dwell with his people in the Garden of Eden. Remember, he was dwelling with all of us in Adam. When Adam was created, where were we? In Adam. We were positionally in Adam. So God was dwelling with all of his people in Adam when he dwelt with Adam. Do you see this? We typically, again, single out Adam as the only one and nobody else. All of us were contained in Adam. So that God was dwelling with all of us then. But when Adam sinned, then the personal presence, activity, fellowshipping presence of God was withdrawn. You remember that. And Adam and Eve were what? Expelled from the garden in Genesis 3.24, the cherubim, the two cherubim were put at the gate of the garden to protect the glory of God, the honor of God. The cherubim are those angels that protect God's honor, God's glory, God's presence. Therefore, you see them in the tabernacle, you see them in the temple. And so Adam and Eve could not go back into the temple, I'm sorry, into the garden. And so we were expelled from the presence of God as to that intimacy of fellowship being partakers of the divine um, uh, nature until he is risen. And so his presence that began to dwell in the Garden of Eden and extended throughout the Old Testament to its consummation, he is risen, says that that presence now is in his people and will be consummated in the new heaven and the new earth wherein there is righteousness and no unrighteousness. You remember that. He is risen. This is the Father's proclamation. Let me, let me say it this way. How do we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son? How do you know that? 
How do you know that Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins? What's the proof? How do you know when Jesus says, God loves you, that that's the truth? How do you know when Jesus says, essentially, I am the Son of God through the I am statements in John's gospel, I am, meaning he is the same one identical with Yahweh of the Old Testament. How do you know that's true? Where's the proof? Because Jesus said it? No. Saying it ain't no proof. I can say I'm a donkey. Now, you may agree with that, but that's not the proof. Where's the proof that everything and anything that Jesus said and did, especially the atoning work at the cross, actually is God's work through his son to forgive his people of all their sin. How do you know it? Where's the proof? David, you're the attorney. Where's the proof? He is risen. He is risen is the Father's proclamation, announcement, that everything about the person and work of this man, Jesus, was in fact his beloved son having taken to himself a human body and soul and so identified him with humanity that he became not ontologically, not in his person, but relationally one with man so that what Jesus, this man, this son of man said and what he did was God's, the Father's own activity by his son through the spirit in this man to redeem us. What proves it? He is risen. He is risen. When you're talking to other people about the validity and the truthfulness of the gospel, don't ever try to convince them with your many words and arguments. Present the resurrection as the quintessential and only proof. May I say that again? The quintessential and what? Only proof that Jesus is in fact the promised redeemer. Promised in Genesis 3.15. Born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day he rose from the dead. This is the proof. The angel says he is risen. It's heaven's declaration. That not only has the son done this, but that the father has accepted it for our redemption. So that means this, that our redemption, our salvation, the forgiveness of our sin is based on what? The death of Christ, the burial of Christ, announced as sufficient and acceptable to the Father in the resurrection of Christ. And that which the Father has accepted on behalf of the Son's work will never be retracted. Correct? Never to be retracted. That's the strength and the power of our salvation. 
It's not something that we decide to do and we call upon the name of the Lord, therefore he saves us. It's something that God determines in eternity. Having a people in his heart and mind already. Saving them through the death of Christ, announcing it as acceptable in the resurrection of Christ. And pouring out the benefits of that accomplished work beginning on the day of Pentecost by the Holy Spirit. Correct? It's God's work. I am so thankful that my salvation did not or does not depend upon my making a decision to be saved and to repent of my sin. I'm so thankful for that. Dead people cannot make living decisions. Correct? We are saved because God determined it to be so. Now, you may have questions about that, and we can talk about that at another time, perhaps. So, he is risen is the Father's proclamation that he has accepted the atoning ministry of his Son as finished or as completed. Colossians 2.17. I think I put the wrong verse down there, didn't I? Let me make that. Sometimes I do do that kind of thing. This means that all the requirements of the law, all the requirements of trying to become legally righteous through obedience. Now, so much to talk about. When the Bible talks about the requirements of the law, the Old Testament, the Ten, the Decalogue, thou shalt not. Remember that in Exodus chapter 20. The essential purpose of the law is given, and there's a lot to this. I'm only going to say it very simply, and I think we'll have to go into more elaboration later. The law is given as the means of man earning righteousness or becoming declared as legally righteous. And the only way that legal righteousness can be declared is in an absolute comprehensive perfection of obedience. Do you see that? The law was given for that purpose. Will you say it's impossible? Therefore, we find out what? We can't become righteous this way. It's not so much, you know, if you're going to do just enough to get by the scales. It's this, absolute perfection. In other words, to obey the law in such a way that you and I are as righteous as God is righteous. Oh, my God. You see... Chris, when I put it that way, what? If I put it that way, it absolutely destroys any hope whatsoever. What do you mean becoming as righteous as God? Doesn't it mean just becoming somewhat righteous? Almost righteous? No. Be ye holy as I am holy. Be holy because I'm holy. And so all the fulfillments of that requirement of absolute righteousness of God himself through the keeping of the law 
and the sacrificial system which paid for the disobedience of the people in order for them to be made fit for the presence of God is accomplished and it is finished and announced as accepted and he is risen. Someone now on our behalf representing us and for us has comprehensively obeyed perfectly every single aspect of God's requirement to be as a man, to be as righteous as God himself is righteous. He's done it on our behalf. He is risen, announces that that requirement of the law has finally, fully, and forever been accomplished. He is risen. The Father's requirement that his people, as we said, be holy because he is holy, is accomplished in the perfect obedience of his Son. See, as a result of this, he is risen. As a result of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the Father now will clothe his people with his own righteousness. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Because of he is risen, now the Father can and will clothe his people who were in Christ, Galatians 2.20, who were in Christ. He will now, because of the he is risen statement, he will now clothe his people with his own righteousness. How? By clothing us or having put on us Christ himself, who is the righteousness of God in a man. He is risen, says that. Therefore, you see, we have become a people of God's own heart. Remember, when Samuel was told to look for a king to replace Saul, what does the Lord say? I want you to look for a man after my own heart. And Jesus is the only one who is a man after God's own heart. And now his people in Christ will become a people after God's own heart. See, it comes together. It's a comprehensive work in Revelation. He is risen because Jesus is alive. Because he's alive, because he is risen, death is dead. Colossians 15, 54, death has been swallowed up in Christ's victory. What do we mean by death is dead? I have done too many funerals in this church to know that death is still living. Is still alive. Does that make sense to you? So what does it mean that death is dead? Does that mean that physical death no more is occurring? So what death is dead? Remember in Genesis 2.17, in the day that you eat of it, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does Genesis 2.17 say? In the day that you what? Eat of it. In the day that you disobey me. You disobey me. Just with this one act. You shall surely die. And that death is a double death. The physical death was a symbol or a representation of the eternal death that is meant by death in that statement. Death of what? 
Adam and Eve, remember, had a personal fellowship relationship with God. And the Lord would come down in the cool of the evening and walk with them and talk with them, right? Remember that song we used to sing? I come to the garden alone. Something like that. Somebody could do a better job than I do. And they would talk with him and walk with him. What happened after the disobedience? God withdrew his personal presence from them and their fellowship with him as to this unity or this bond of binding them, if you would. Hey, give, me, give, me, give me a moment. As to their becoming partakers of the divine nature, Second Peter 1, 4. That was ceased. There was a death to that relationship. And as a result of that, God's work moving forward is to reestablish that filial family relationship with his people so that the death that occurs to the relationship may be put to death in the death of Jesus so that in his resurrection, that life of Jesus may be now given to us so that we may be raised from a dead relationship to God himself on a personal basis to a living relationship with this living God in the resurrection. That's what Romans 4.25, I think, has to do with. I don't know if that's in your notes, though. So, death is dead. Jesus' death is death's dead. Uh, death's death. And finally, it will become obviously and applied in a physical sense. Remember, when is death thrown into the lake of fire? Revelation. What chapter? Death is thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation. You remember? The final enemy, which is, which is what? Death will be thrown into the lake of fire. That will be the time when there will be no more physical death to any of God's people, and to anything in all creation. Death itself will be put away so that in the entire new creation, there won't be any deterioration, any death at all. Everything will be according to life. Our biblical scholars up here are looking for death was thrown into the lake of fire. When you find it, yell it out. It's somewhere in Revelation, but I will give you a hint. It's real close to chapter 19. What, because Jesus is alive, because he is risen, Satan's authority over us is forever broken. Remember this verse, Hebrews 2.14. He, through death, through his own death, Christ might destroy or did destroy the one who has a power, dominion, control, authority of death. That is the devil. 2014, is that near 19? Okay, 2014. And death, the final uh, enemy, doesn't say the final enemy, is thrown into the lake of fire. Thank you, Janet, for helping Julio. (laughs) Satan's authority is broken. I used to use this analogy when I was going down to the uh, New Orleans mission years ago. I think in this country, the word slavery conjures, at least in the black community, a depth of horror 
that it doesn't in any other group of people in this country. So when we talk about slavery in this country, it really touches people totally differently. And it touches black folks differently than white folks. Of course it does. But so I would use the analogy of slavery as to the old South. And these people were under the absolute control of their white masters. They had absolutely no ability to make any decision whatsoever or to do anything or go anywhere or whatever apart from their master's approval. Correct? Or they would suffer greatly. And so, to use the analogy, we were all at one time under the cruelest master of all. Because even what the black folks in this country experienced those days was nothing, nothing like the slavery that we all were in bondage to Satan. Amen? It's nothing. But when Jesus died... Death was still triumphant. Death was still, if you would, licking his lips. Right, Michael? What caused death to have a heart attack? When Jesus rose from the dead. Death was shown to have been broken as to its authority and power over humanity in Christ. So we've been made free. We're no longer under the bondage and the control and the authority of Satan who used death as his ultimate weapon. Steve has been what? Broken forever. And so now, James, you can, you can leave the, uh, what do they call them? Uh, the, the house. What do you, uh, the, you can leave the, thank you, somebody help me on that. You can leave the plantation. You're free, James. You're free. Thank God I'm free. Why? Because someone has paid the price to get you out of the plantation, right? You're free. Go. So James out there walking around free. He's free. And then one day the master calls, hey, you. Excuse me. Boy. Come back. You see, through sin and temptation, Satan is calling James back. Through temptation to sin, he's calling you, boy, come on back, right? Do you do see that? Is it okay to say it this way? Is that all right? I hope it is. I just did it. <laughs> but look, look, he's calling us back. So James hears him. And James all of a sudden becomes terrified. And he goes back to the plantation to submit himself under the mastery of this cruel master. What's wrong with that? He's free. He doesn't have to obey that voice anymore. We don't have to obey the voice of the tempter anymore. 
Every time we sin, we go back to the plantation. And then we come to our senses. Remember Luke 15, 17, and this young boy came to his senses. What in the world am I doing in all this pig poop? What am I doing? I will leave the pig house and go back to the big house. So James comes to his cell. What am I doing? That's right. He is risen. I don't belong here. And he gets back up and he goes back free. But then again, what happens? A voice comes and says, hey, you. Hey, you. You. Come back in here. You mine. And Phage says, no. No, I'm not yours. I belong to another master. His name is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ, the glorious Son of God. I don't have to go back into the plantation of sin and Jody, I don't have to go with my feelings and my thoughts. Jim, my attitudes and my fears. I'm free. The spiritual free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Is only true in the context of the gospel. Are you with me on this? So we're the only people who can genuinely say what? The society can't say it. I don't care what they say. We're the only people who can say what? Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. We're what? We're free at last. The old master has no more control over me. Amen. He is risen. And Satan is defeated. And death is thrown into the lake of fire and so will Satan be thrown into the lake of fire. I don't know about you, but I've already asked God for front row seats. And I am going to yell that day as I never have yelled before. And all those Christians who are afraid to raise their voices are going to be bellowing and shouting as they've never done before. He's finished, he's finished, he's finished forever. Amen? Yes. You see, he is risen. Our sin is forever forgiven. Remember that verse in Jeremiah 31, 34? He says, I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Now, I must say again, that verse does not say... Julie, that God's going to forget your sin. Did you just sin? I don't remember because you're in Christ and I can't see except through Jesus. I don't know if you're sinning or not. That's foolishness. That's foolishness. Otherwise, there can't be a judgment of the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. You know where that is. I don't have to quote that verse for you. Now, well, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So God does remember. He knows every thought, every deed, Every attitude, every motive of sin. But what's the good news? In the face of that, when we sin, he sees that sin, yes, that I have just done. 
but he sees it within the context of it is finished. Declaring it to be finished in he is risen. So he no longer holds any sin. May I repeat that word? Any sin. How much is in any sin? Every sin. He no longer holds any sin against us as to punishment and guilt. But he will deal with ongoing unrepented sin by discipline. Correct? Okay. So God does not forget in that kind of a way. That's good news. Look, that's good news. The next time you sin... You don't have to raise your hand on this. Apparently, maybe it'd be better. But when you sin, how many feel guilty and, oh, what have I done? And this is so bad. Stop it. Stop it. You're forgetting he is risen. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Jesus Christ righteous. And he is the propitiation of payment for our sins and not for ours only but for the sin of the whole world the world of God's people we believe so don't bemoan don't groan be shameful yes I think there's a place for shame but don't mope and moan go to God say father I've sinned cleanse my heart by your spirit Cause me to be repenting of this and turning away in my heart, in the depth of my being. And apply the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus in this area in which I have just given in to the old master. Amen? Amen. Don't mope and moan anymore. Get up. Dust yourself off, go to God, confess that you did it wrong, and receive not the forgiveness you've already been forgiven, but the power of the forgiveness of Christ to overcome and have him deal with that area so that the next time Satan comes knocking at your door, you can tear him down with a no, which throws him way back across the street and out of your neighborhood. Too many Christians are moping and moaning about what they're not doing right. Stop it. Deal with it effectively by the gospel. Satan wants you to be under condemnation and guilt. Stop it. You cannot grow in Christ and mature and experience the power of God's victory in Christ if you do it that way. Perhaps that's why some are still, you know, struggling in areas where we should be walking in freedom in many, many areas. More freedom today than we experienced six months ago. All the blessings he has risen. All the blessings of God are now ours in Christ. Remember Ephesians 1.3? Blessed be the God, what? And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has, what? As past tense. Who has blessed us with how many? How many? How many? Every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. Or did I get it wrong? 
in Christ, we are fully blessed by God. I don't ask for God to bless me. I ask God to reveal the blessings that are mine in Christ in a fuller and more dynamic way. You got it? Oh, bless me, God. I need a blessing today. In Christ, I am blessed. I may need the activity or the revelation or the good or whatever of the blessing that I have in Christ in a particular category. But I have the blessing. Do you have the blessing? Are you in Christ? Then you see, we are in Christ before the Father as blessed as his own son is blessed. It's difficult to get your hand around, isn't it? We've been raised in his resurrection. Colossians 3.1. If you or since you have been raised with Christ. We've been raised. We no longer belong to the realm of this earth. We belong to a heavenly realm. Therefore, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.17. What does it say? 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.17. What does it say? If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation or new creature. Behold, all things have become new. The old have passed away. All things have become new. We're new in Christ. We've been raised. We're no longer. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore, because he is risen, there is therefore what? Now, now, there is therefore when? Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 1. Having been justified, he is risen. Therefore, having been justified, justified by faith, we have peace. The warfare is over with God. Romans 5, 5. Remember this? For the love of God has been what? Shed abroad, poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All of that is contained in he is risen. All of that comes to us on the basis of he is risen. The resurrection now allows God to pour into our hearts the entire benefit of the finished work of the incarnation of his son. Thank you. Somebody need to say glory. That's not for me. That's for God. You see, he is finished. He is risen, rather, is the Father's affirmation that his promise in the Old Testament to raise his people from the dead has been achieved. And we've just said that. It's interesting. The Sadducees, remember, didn't believe in the resurrection. Do you know that the word resurrection is not in the Old Testament? And because of that, there's some who teach, therefore, the Old Testament did not teach resurrection. It's not in there. Many who, or at least some who deny the Trinity, say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, therefore. But neither is the word resurrection in the Bible. I'm sorry, in the Old Testament. But look what we do have in the Old Testament. We have several, many, many implicit um, um, Proofs, if you would, implicit examples of the resurrection in the Old Testament. Not explicit. Explicit means that is a resurrection. We have many implicit. Let me just give you a couple. Genesis 22, 5. You remember when Abraham was approached by God in Genesis chapter 22? 
Isaac is about probably 20 years old by now. Abraham's an old guy. He's even older than I am, so he's old. And he says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac, and take him to the land of Moriah that I will show you and sacrifice him to me. All of the promise of God to Abraham as far as a seed and a land and everything that is future is tied up in this one son. Do you see? In God's son, everything is tied up in him. And so Abraham, three days, and Isaac trudge off to Moriah. Three days. What was going through this old man's heart? And when they get there, Abraham, okay, son, build the altar. Now, the wood you've been carrying, it, put it down. And the father binds his son to the altar. God binds his son to the cross. And the son says, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, what? The Lord will provide. But when, before they go, as they get to Moriah, Abraham and Isaac are going to go off. But what does Abraham say to his his, um, his uh, servants in verse 5. The lad and I, and he's lad, he's a young guy because this Abraham's 140 some odd years old, so a guy 20 is still a lad. You understand that relationally. The lad and I will go, but we will return. In the land of Moriah, the same location where David years later will buy the threshing floor of Onan upon which the temple of God will be built. Same place. Same place. You see, years before, a sacrifice is made to indicate that in that temple, a sacrifice will be made because of God's presence. Remember Job nineteen twenty-five and 26, he's talking about the devastation of his life, and he says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will stand upon the earth. This is incredible. Resurrection language. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I'm going to stop with this one because I don't have time to go any further. So we'll pick up next week with number seven. And I do want you to be looking at a couple of Old Testament passages, and you'll see them in there. First Chronicles 22, 9, Second Chronicles 3, 1, because this is so clearly pictured in the life of Jesus and in the life of David and Solomon. It's typed. He is risen. What of this earth should get us down? Every time... You're attacked. I'm attacked by circumstances, problems, difficulties, temptations. What should we say? He is risen. And where does he live? Remember that song? He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. 
He lives within my heart. Amen. Better tell Eric I'm good for the choir. <laughs> <laughs>